Welcome to Narratives of Asia. This episode is part of a collaboration between UCL African Conference and UCL Asiatic Affairs, where students and professionals get around the table to connect and talk about Asia-Africa relations, specifically through the lens of China's influence and impact on Africa. In this collaboration, we seek to open constructive conversations on geopolitics and history that tie the two continents together. Hello everyone, and welcome to the first episode of a collaboration between UCL African Conference and UCL Asiatic Affairs. In this episode, we'll be looking into China's foreign policy in Africa in tandem with the African debt crisis. I'm Angela, Publications Officer at UCL Asiatic Affairs and second year European Social and Political Studies student and I'll be the moderator for this discussion. Joining me today is Min Jing, one of the members of our writers group at Asiatic Affairs, and I'm joined also by Hafsa, Larissa, Stephen, and Lisa from UCL African Conference. If I could ask you all to please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Larissa. I'm a second year law student at UCL, and I am um, part of the logistics team of UCLAC. I am from um, Cameroonian and German background. Oh, hey, I'm Stephen. Um, I'm a second year mechanical engineering student at UCL. Um, I'm from Nigeria originally, from the Yoruba tribe, and I'm co-executive of the UCL African Conference. Hi, I'm Lisa. I'm also a second year law student and also executive, co-executive alongside Stephen, and I'm of Nigerian descent also. Hi, I'm Hafsa. I'm a second year history and philosophy of science student. Um, I'm president of the UCL Africa Conference and I am Somali, but born and raised in London. Hi, I'm Minjing. I'm a first year English student and I'm a writer at Asiatic Affairs. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining me today. So you mentioned UCL African Conference and I think that you've got an event coming up soon. Would you like to jump in and kind of talk a bit more about that? Um, yes, yeah, so we've got a conference coming up on the 13th of February, uh, which is very exciting. It's the first one that's happening at UCL. So we're literally going to be discussing investing in Africa, but we won't just be talking about the financial aspects. We'll be talking about investing social, uh, socially, investing economically in Africa, and just improving the well-being of the African continent as a whole. And yeah, that's our main aim. So we're just aiming to educate students about Africa and the wider community as well. Yeah, so get your tickets. The conference is this Saturday, uh, the 13th of February. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. In our first episode of this mini-series on understanding China-Africa relations, we'll be looking exclusively at understanding China's foreign policy and the African debt crisis. So the African debt crisis is talked about quite a lot in close relation with China-Africa discourses. Um, so what does the term actually refer to? So um, the meaning of debt crisis is uh, basically that China invests a lot of money in African infrastructures, especially heavy physical infrastructure like road building. And basically the amount of money that is invested is so high that um, countries are often not able to repay them fully. They default on their loan. And therefore they come into the cycle where interest um, accumulates and they just cannot repay the money ever and become even more dependent than on China because China is actually often quite lenient and has rather friendly um, attitude towards African countries and therefore they become politically dependent and for them it's then difficult to get out of that cycle also because often um, these securities are backed by resources, by natural resources and sometimes they run out so they are just unable to pay and there's nothing they can really do to mitigate those circumstances. Yeah, just to add to that, um, 
the debt is unsustainable. So it's just that African countries, African governments are taking on these loans and not really thinking of the long-term effects and whether they can actually pay it back. Um, I think they've been described as like the methamphetamines of like the financial world because they're very addictive, they're very easy to access. And for the short term, it's, you know, it's positive to get money, to be able to um, fund these infrastructure projects and these roads, even hospitals. But um, a lot of the times there's no consideration made about um, how that's going to work out in the future and how they'll be able to pay it back. And as a result, a lot of countries are at the brink of default, really. And we've seen recently with Zambia defaulting on its loans to China. Um, I haven't really seen how that's going to play out, but it's something that's wide-reaching all across the continent and literally every corner. Yeah, and I think the debt has been compared to um, aid taken by, for example, the IMF. Um, and I think China, the aid that they provide, like Lisa just mentioned, is attractive, much more easily accessible compared to the IMF, for example. And uh, you also have to consider that um, it's not just that African governments, the governments of African countries are simply not um, considering the long-term consequences or are just acting uh, without thinking through, they are just really dependent on these investments. Um, the populations are growing dramatically in Africa and infrastructure is desperately needed. So um, they don't really have uh, much choice if they get these investment offers by China. Mm -hmm. These issues um, regarding China's debt trap diplomacy are quite prevalent on the media at the moment. And we see China investing in Africa in various sorts of ways. Apart from engaging the governments in Africa in these kind of debt relations, is there any evidence of positive development by Chinese investment? I mean, certainly uh, the positive impact is quite evident with it, with them investing in roads, um, in hospitals, in railways, in investing in airports, all these things. Of course, there's an impact, positive impact for Africa as a whole, increasing its interconnectivity across the continent. So yeah, there are benefits, but there are definitely legitimate concerns that have been raised, especially given the fact that most of the time, well, almost exclusively, uh, the people working on these expansions are Chinese themselves. So a lot of the time, the loans, a key um, agreement within the loans is that Chinese workers be brought in to work and to um, build, you know, more airport terminals to build the railways. So, yeah. Um, just to add on to Lisa's point, I also saw an article where we uh, we saw Chinese investment into an airport, and the airport wasn't actually being used as it's like as it's meant to be used. So like it had no passengers going into the airport, despite the fact that it's a brand new airport. So some of the investment that China's putting into Africa is doesn't like, isn't like worthwhile because if it's not bringing in money straight away, when is it ever going to bring in money? And yeah, to add to what Stephen said, a lot of the times the investments are motivated by. Um, what China can get out of them. So they're investing in infrastructure like the railways, for example, they invested, I think it's like 4.5 billion in Ethiopia to um, fund railways, but that was so that they could transport commodities, um, which would obviously benefit China because a lot of these commodities they require because China being like a key um, center of output in the world, um, it's really important for them. So they don't directly, in some ways, they don't directly improve Africa in that way. To quote China's um, white paper, which essentially illustrates their approach to foreign diplomacy with Africa, states quite explicitly that China is invested in Africa and says that no one could stand in the way or obstruct international efforts to support Africa's development. And the focus is actually on collaboration. What are your opinions on this whole portrayal of Chinese involvement in Africa as being a multilateral approach and one that is offering cooperation and co-development instead of just a one-way profit and debt sort of cycle? 
I mean, that portrayal is certainly not quite accurate because you would think, what does China really get out of such collaboration? It's much more about political dominance and influence, I think. Since they're defaulting on their loan payment, China doesn't really get much out of it. And in fact, many of deals and investments China does in these countries are commercially not very profitable or sensible. So you really have to see that behind all their actions, there's this kind of uh, political aim to increase their influence. That also becomes very evident if you look at the ports. Um, in fact, all of the ports that were built by China are able to um, employ the or support the employment of um, China's Navy ships. And also all the companies involved are required to support um, the Chinese army. So, And they have, in fact, already um, erected a, a Chinese military base, I think, in Djibouti. So you can really see it's not about profit or collaboration. It's just about um, political influence and strategic progress. Um, yeah, most definitely. Again, this has been um, identified by the US as politically motivated. So all the actions that they're carrying out within Africa is just for them to gain advantage um, again on the whole world stage and also gain advantage in things like the UN. So you will see that a lot of um, African countries will vote with China on certain legislations that are being made within the UN, whereas other countries where they don't have um, as much investment um, will vote against China. So we'll see that a lot of countries that vote for China, they'll receive much more funding in terms of infrastructure, whereas countries that vote against China won't receive as much funding. So yeah, I would definitely say it's politically motivated. Just to add to Stephen's point, and, and yeah, it really makes sense, right? Why would you vote against China if they're your biggest creditor? Like, who wants to infuriate someone that they owe money? So it makes a lot of sense. Although, to be fair, we haven't seen a lot of defaults yet because these loans, a lot of them are long-term, with Zambia being one of the few so far, but we kind of know that um, defaults are imminent. But it's really evident that it is like strategic. So with the fact that the two places that China invests the most in are Nigeria, and that's the biggest economy in Africa, and Angola, which is their fourth largest source of oil. So um, yeah, you can really see the strategy behind it. And yeah, um, I think you also just touched upon there, Lisa, um, is just to kind of mention, not only is it political, but it's also economic dominance, which we are kind of already saying, but um, Africa is like full of rich um, oil, minerals, um, so many resources that China could actually benefit from. Um, so I think, Lisa, you actually mentioned this in one of your articles, um, but if some countries default in their loans, um, they have to give up like ports, they have to, I think, give up, like what they would repay is... Um, in resources. But yeah, that's what I want to add. Um, I just want to circle back to what uh, Stephen just mentioned. He's, it was something about how um, the US was saying that um, China was providing this infrastructure for political gain. And while we cannot deny it, because I mean, it's really obvious to everybody that a lot of it is politically motivated. I think when we talk about China in relation to what the U.S. says, there's always this caveat we have to make that the U.S. is also saying things from a very political point of view. So while the administration of the ex-U.S. president, Trump, um, while he's keen to promote this notion that you know China is providing all this infrastructure funding to um, African countries in order to help its own economy, in order to, um, I don't know, embark on a plan of domination, I think we still have to take into account um, the positive sides of the things that we've just mentioned. And of course, on how 
um, whatever that it comes of that administration is also rather politically charged. So I would be a bit more skeptical <laughs> when I look at it. But yeah, I think defaulting on debt it isn't a good look on any country. So China, in my personal opinion, in um, also with what some experts are saying, um, is that China is becoming more careful about its lending because it's concerned that it has made a lot of credit available to some African countries. And if those African countries default on their loans, it's not a good look for them. And it's also not good for China because technically all these things are investments and China also doesn't want to lose any money in, inv in investing. Yeah, actually, I have to agree with Ming because, yeah, anything the US says about China, that's very true. You do have to caveat it with like where they're coming from. In some ways, they're almost rivals with China. I think they're projected to be overtake the US as the largest economy is about like 2030. So definitely you can see the rivalry there. And we do have to um, be clear that it's not just China investing in Africa, that the US and the UK used to be like dominating in Africa before China came and, and started like pushing more money and more development finance and infrastructure. Yeah, this is just a, a side point to that, but we can just see the way China is like aiming to become like the next dominant player in like the world system in like the way they've invested in their media. Um, so I noticed somewhere that they are going to overtake Hollywood within the next um, decade or so. Um, so yeah, although we do need to take it with a pinch of salt when you compare it to what the US says, um, every dominating kind of country would always be self-interested and self-motivated so although there could be some positives to it, I do think China's always just going to be thinking about their own interests and what would benefit their own economy and their own position as a dominant political player. And to be fair, that makes sense. I mean, if you're learning someone money, you want to think about how it's going to benefit you. So, yeah, you know, it's not aid, it's actually a loan. So, yeah, it does make sense, um, China's thought process. Yeah, I was just going to say, maybe African countries need to start having that um, self-motivated um, kind of political economic policies. Um, so, yeah, I definitely agree with you, Lisa. Yeah, and that's something I mentioned in my article about this topic, that I think we need to take a leaf out of their book as African nations. And we need to have leaders that are putting Africa first, because we've got a long way to go. I think they said, collectively, African countries have like an infrastructure gap of 68 to 108 billion per year. Yeah, to add on to what Ming said, I know that China have announced, I think quite recently, that they're going to reduce the amount that they are investing um, abroad. So, Yeah, I think what you said, Lisa, about taking the leaf out of the book is a good way of kind of finding a balance to this sort of discourse. And my final question to wrap up this episode, which is going to be about um, whether you thought China's debt trap diplomacy is a myth and how good is China for Africa really? Yeah, China is like, it's not faultless, but I would put the blame mainly on African leaders with them just really facilitating what's going on in Africa, them allowing themselves to become indebted, their nations to become indebted, allowing um, Chinese workers to be brought on, brought in on projects when there's a lot of unemployment across uh, the continent. So yeah, I would shift the blame a lot to the leaders. Um and yeah, and their short-term thinking and not considering the long-term impacts. Although I do believe that China is complicit as well because they kind of know what they're doing and they do um, see the benefit of investing in Africa in such a way. 
Um, yeah, just to add on to Lisa's point, I would say that China's just been taking the opportunity that they've seen in front of them. Like, they wouldn't, like if I was another country, I would also take the opportunity. I feel like European countries haven't really taken the opportunity, mainly because of what happened, what's happened in the past. They, they don't want this to be portrayed as another form of colonialism. So I'd say China's literally just taking the opportunity compared, well, compared to other countries. Because I remember reading an article and it, uh, and it was asking the question, why doesn't the US do this to Africa? Or why doesn't the UK do this to Africa? So yeah, I would just say China's just in the prime position to make the most out of the situation. And I would also just add that, um, yeah, as you just mentioned, Stephen, of course, they want to present it as not being another colonial power. But if we look at some of the socio-political discourse around um, neocolonialism, one of the points mentioned by Frank Wallerstein is dependency theory. So countries in the new world order are actually made dependent by the already developed countries. And I would say that the debt trap diplomacy isn't a myth and it's just another example of um, developing countries countries being made dependent by already developed countries. Yeah, I would definitely agree with those points. And also with what Lisa said, that blame should be put on the African governments. If you if you look at the growth of population and um, considerations like food shortage, and also at the moment, there are many new technologies also um, concerning agriculture. So if China invests in these kind of technologies, um, they can really help in the short term, as we said, um, to um, remedy some of these problems. The blame should be put on the governments because they accept the investment, but because they do not themselves remedy the the actual causes that prevent other countries from making less unilaterally beneficial investments. So a lot of Western investors and uh, many European countries have stopped investing and aiding African countries because of the risks, and the risks are created by the malfunctioning governments. Um, the corruption is one of the main causes. Yeah, and I think that's the fault of the African leaders. They should just construct properly functioning governments and then they could also attract better and uh, more collaborative investors. I honestly didn't expect to hear so much um, of the blame, if we can call that, being shifted on Africa's side. Yeah, I thought I would be hearing another narrative, but we also have to think about China's lack of transparency when it comes to loans, because that definitely increases the risk of corruption, not just in Africa, but also on China's own side. So that, I think, also fuels the whole debt crisis in general. When there's no transparency, you don't know where the money goes, and corruption is an entrenched problem that can lead to further debt. Yeah, I do. I agree with that because, yeah, even now, we don't know the extent of indebtedness. Like, it's not public knowledge. Nobody knows because the way that China invests is invest through multiple streams, through multiple of its state-owned banks. And I don't know, the reason I do put it on African leaders is just that if they were thinking with their people in mind in the first place, they wouldn't allow things like that to happen or they would negotiate it in a way where it would be more beneficial for Africans. But like I said, I definitely think China is still complicit because they know what they're doing. Um, and yeah, they know the impacts for African nations. They can kind of see a lot of them might not be able to pay in future. So yeah. 
yeah, I think as a younger generation, we're kind of tired of the the typical view or we should blame the Western colonial powers, but we're no longer living in a period of colonialism. And you see so many countries that were previously under colonial rule that are now able to um, no longer fall under the same debt trap, for example. Uh, Like if we use India as an example, that's self-sufficient. So yeah, I think we're all kind of tired of that trope. Yeah, and I I think those are some really great points to end on. Just really wanted to go back to two points that I mentioned about how China's government is very much opportunistic. And Minjin mentioned that um, in its lack of transparency with its loan, that's something that we should definitely be more conscious about and looking more closely at. And I think that that links up really well with kind of going into our next episodes about China's BRI system. Personally, I'm quite surprised we talked about blaming the government, but I also see how it's an important point to bring up because then we'll be looking at the role of the government in its response and the way it interacts with China's um, Belt and Road Initiative in Africa in our following episode. So that's all the time that we have for today. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And the six of us will be continuing our conversation in the second episode on China's Belt and Road Initiative and the implications for Africa. Dear listener, if you would like to find out more about issues in Africa, UCLAC is hosting their much-anticipated conference on 13th February 2021, and we would love to see you there. If you found this episode to be educational and learned something from this, do recommend this podcast to your friends and family by word of mouth or on social media. Tag us at UCL Asiatic Affairs and at the UCLAC on Instagram or Facebook. We would love to hear all of your thoughts on this episode. Again, thank you so much for staying with us and stay tuned for another episode. We are Asiatic Affairs and UCL African Conference and this is Narratives of Asia.